Migraine is a disease that likes taking advantage of chaos. And so the more consistent you can be with your schedule, and that comes to staying hydrated and drinking water consistently, staying fed on a regular basis, sleeping on a consistent schedule, all of those are really helpful factors in helping to control and manage just healthy living, good sleep, good eating, moderate exercise, all of those are protective factors they are going to help reduce migraine attacks as well. That is the voice of Kevin Lineberg, Executive Director of CHAMP. He joins me today to discuss migraine awareness and care management. You're listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Mr. Lineberg, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad that you are here. For those who do not know, CHAMP is the acronym for Coalition for Headache and Migraine Patients. What exactly is migraine and how does it differ from a headache? So glad you start with that question because so often the misconception is that migraine is just a headache. Someone says, oh, I've had headaches before. You say you have migraine. They must be the same thing. They really aren't. Migraine is it's a whole body attack that happens when someone experiences a migraine attack. And it's a very variable disease. Some people have certain symptoms, some have others. It's on a spectrum. Some people, the pain is off the charts. It's always severe in some way, but for some people it's lower. And then the frequency, some people, the lucky ones with migraine will have maybe one attack a year or every few years. And then other people have it much more frequently. There's a whole group known as chronic migraine which means that you're experiencing migraine attacks on more than half the days of the month. So you can imagine how much that impacts someone's life if they're in that chronic migraine. So the symptoms to get to it is, you know, you start with the head pain. It's more than head pain that's there and it needs to be uh, considered severe. Again, it's not just that dull background head pain that's more often a tension type headache, but it's pretty severe. And then it's also associated with sensitivity to light and sound. Those external stimuli can trigger an attack. They can also exacerbate it. So oftentimes when people are experiencing a migraine attack, they will go into a dark and quiet room to be away from lights and noises. Often it's associated with nausea, a sick feeling in the stomach, all the way through actual vomiting during attacks is very common. And then it's exacerbated by activity when someone's in the midst of a migraine attack no exercise, let alone, you know, just walking up a flight of stairs is something that they really want to avoid. Are there triggers? Can someone who is about to have a migraine attack, is there some type of foreshadowing? It's a tricky situation because for each person it's different. And we try to be clear that this is a serious medical condition. It's not your fault. You didn't get that migraine because you did do something or you didn't do something. It's you have migraine disease and that makes you more susceptible to certain triggering factors. Oftentimes, uh, smells can be triggering, flashing lights can be triggering, and then disruptions to people's normal schedules. Not getting enough sleep or sleeping too much can trigger. Being dehydrated can trigger. So there's all of those factors. And then on the other side, we look at migraine protectors. 
what are the things that you can be doing that will reduce the odds of getting attacked? And that would be a lot of healthy things such as staying hydrated, eating well, moderate exercise, having a consistent schedule. And as you balance these factors, they stack up those risks factors, those triggers, as well as the protective factors that work against it. You always, someone with migraine tries to manage that balance in a way that they can avoid triggering an attack. How debilitating can a migraine attack be? It can be incredibly debilitating. The World Health Organization looked at this and said that for someone who, and they rated various levels of disability, and they say that someone who's in the midst of a full-blown migraine attack is as disabled as some very, very serious medical conditions because your whole body is impacted, your brain is not working well, there's mental fog, there's fatigue. It just really impacts your life at a personal level. The reason I'm in this field, I myself am not someone who has migraine, doesn't experience migraine attacks, but I'm the care partner to my lovely girlfriend who unfortunately had episodic migraine attacks ever since she was five years old. When we started dating, it started that way. And then about a year into our relationship, she got a migraine attack and it never went away. And for both of us, that was an eye-opening experience. We're like, what do you mean you can have a migraine that keeps going? They usually always end in 24 to 72 hours. But for those who get chronic migraine or the worst form of chronic migraine, the chronic daily intractable migraine, it never goes away. So it was a long journey we went on trying to learn about this condition, manage it. She was still trying to work. Eventually, she had to withdraw from work despite all the accommodations they were making. Her disease was just so severe and had to go on disability. And ultimately she reinvented herself as an advocate and writer in the migraine space. And she's amazing, but it has completely altered the course of her life and by extension, my life as well. It affects the whole body. How does that work? How does it affect the whole body? So there's all those symptoms that you have beyond the head pain. You can have extra sensitivity. You can have the way that it impacts your ability to think, Slurred speech comes with migraine attacks, mental fog, the nausea. There are just so many ways that people, and they, you know, oftentimes when it's represented, oh, show me a picture of someone with migraine, show someone, you know, sort of holding their head like, oh, I have a little bit of head pain. Whereas a more accurate image would be showing someone curled up in a painful fetal position in a dark bedroom, showing someone curled around a toilet because they're dealing with nausea. Those are the things that oftentimes aren't reflected when migraine is shown visually or talked about and how much it's impacting people's systems. What are the most significant findings in migraine research? The positive part of the story, as much as the doom and gloom about how tough this disease can be, is that this is really a golden era of care for migraine. More new treatments have come to market in the past few years than in the two decades before that. We have a new understanding about the mechanisms of how migraine works. And there's a, a neurological peptide called CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide. And being able to block that can interfere with migraine attacks. It can prevent them from happening in the first place. Or if one gets started, it can break the chain and keep it from progressing. And so we have new medicines, both preventive and acute, looking at that CGRP pathway as well as others on other pathways. So the thing that I want to sort of communicate to people is if you know you have migraine or if you think you have migraine, because the challenge is 40 million Americans are estimated to have migraine, but only 60% have ever gotten an accurate diagnosis of migraine. That means about 16 million people are experiencing migraine, but don't have that accurate diagnosis. So the things that we're talking about, 
a recurring headache of severity with these other associated symptoms, you should go talk to your doctor about that. Or if you know you have migraine, you tried a treatment years ago, maybe it didn't work so well for you. The efficacy wasn't there or the side effects weren't great. We have great new options. You should go back, make an appointment with a healthcare provider, explore what is available now and see if it can help you to better manage this tricky and complex disease. Patients, providers, researchers, and caregivers in the migraine space, including senators and representatives from 47 states, are coming together to discuss this disease. There were actually 272 digital meetings that happened earlier this week, organized by a group called the Alliance for Headache Disorders Advocacy. Every year, they put on an event called Headache on the Hill where advocates, both healthcare headache specialists and people with headache diseases go to Capitol Hill and would normally, you know, march around to all the different offices and do in-person meetings. Now with the pandemic, those switch digital meetings, but it was the biggest event in the 14 years, the most amount of advocates involved, the most amount of meetings. And it's vital because this disease, it's stigmatized it's underinvested in, and those who have it are not afforded the accommodations and protections those with other more visible diseases have earned, and rightfully so. And we just want a fairness and an equity there. So some of the things that, that's you know, put, making it meaningful is research from NIH. They are instructed that where they allocate their research dollars should be in rough proportion to the impact of the disease how many people experience it, how severe it is. And if you plot out all the different diseases, there's a line that most of them are approximately on. But there's an outlier way on there, and that is migraine. Whereas it should be receiving approximately $300 million a year from the NIH in research if it was treated similarly to other diseases, we're only getting $25 million mm. per year. So it's just a tiny fraction. And without that research, we don't have the best understanding. We don't have the best treatments. You name it. Those dollars can be vital to uncovering new opportunities for better lives of people with migraines. So we went up on Capitol Hill. We asked one. We had two asks. One was asking the NIH. You know, not all the way to three hundred million. We aim over the long term to get there, but you know, incremental, going from the current twenty-five million to fifty million dollars of mandated research funds for migraine and headache. And then the second ask that we had was specific to the Veterans Administration. There's a phenomenon, it's terrible, that so many people who are serving their country in the military are coming back with much higher headache rates, much higher migraine rates than the rest of the population. There is traumatic brain injury from accidents or custom weapons. And there's just the stress of being in the theater of war and a post-traumatic stress syndrome being connected to headaches. So we see these much higher rates of headache in the VA, but they weren't equipped to properly deal with them. So we got funding a few years ago to create these headache centers of excellence within the VA. And there are now 14 of them, which is fantastic. Credit to the VA and the government for taking action, but that's not enough centers. It's too far for the veterans to be going for the care that we need. So we're asking for funding that will double that number to at least 28 headache centers in the VA system across the U.S. Currently, we are asking the people that we met with in Congress, the representatives and centers to sign on to dear colleague letters of support 
and we're asking people to, you can go to the Alliance for Headache Disorders Advocacy website. If you want to take action, they have a link there and you can click it. It's a pre-written letter, put in your address so it knows which office in Congress to send it to, and you can have your individual voice heard on these really important issues. We're talking about a major disease. 40 million Americans experience episodic or chronic migraine attacks annually. Does migraine disease point to or can it be related to a bigger health issue? It can. Migraine itself is its own disease and there are underlying genetic factors that make people more predisposed to having it. You can see in people's family tree either known migraine or oftentimes it's not diagnosed, but they'll say, oh, my mom or my aunt or someone in their family tree would always you know, complain of having headaches and they would retreat to a room and not be present for family events. And they say, ah, I now understand they were probably dealing with migraine disease back then. There, it's its own disease, but some things to be on the lookout for is those who have migraine, especially migraine with aura, or is uh, it's not doesn't happen to everyone. It's maybe about 25% who experience migraine. They will see some type of a visual disturbance. It can look like a crescent moon or sparkly, and it can grow in their field of vision. And that's known as aura. And people who have migraine with aura, unfortunately, are more predisposed to experiencing strokes. So that is a real risk factor that you'll want to talk with your healthcare provider about if you are someone with migraine with aura. And it sort of changes the calculus and how you may try to prevent strokes for you. And then if there's any change in headache, that is a real warning sign. Migraine being so prevalent, most people I talk to, I say, hey, if you're having a headache, it sort of seems like these ways, that's likely migraine. You should talk to a healthcare provider to see what you can do about it. But if there's that big change, oh, my headaches used to be like this, but now they're much more severe, different in character, that's a warning sign that it could be something other than migraine, potentially very serious, and time is of the essence. So if someone has a change in their headache type, that's when I say, don't delay, get to a healthcare provider and explore this and figure out what's going on. The American healthcare system is burdened with inequalities that have a disproportionate impact on people of color and other marginalized groups. These inequalities contribute to gaps in health insurance coverage, uneven access to services and poor health outcomes among certain populations. African-Americans bear the brunt of these healthcare challenges, especially when related to headache disease. Why is that the case? Lack of research means we don't have a perfect understanding of how migraine exists and is prevalent across different ethnicities. The best that we can tell is it occurs in the general population, about 15%. And that's consistent for the white demographic, black demographic, and Hispanic Latino. Those who are American Indian and Alaskan Native are maybe a little bit higher, up at 20% prevalence. Those who are Asian American, Pacific Islander, maybe a little lower at 10%. So there's a little fluctuation, but the, the macro story is it's pretty commonly prevalent across different races and ethnicities. But yet, we see in data relating to those who are Black and have migraine is that there is delayed diagnosis, there is under-treatment, and then there is exacerbation and chronification of the condition that is not being properly dealt with by our healthcare system that they have reduced access to. And when they do get in the system, unfortunately, systemic racism leads to this undertreatment, lack of respect. We have someone in our coalition, her name is Jamie Sanders. She blogs under the name The Migraine Diva. And for a long time, she had been 
the lone individual who was black who was part of our coalition and trying to bring attention to these issues. And we're really glad that what she had been pushing for so long met its moment more broadly with the country's reckoning more of these issues than ever before. And so in this summer, we created an organization called DIHAP, Disparities in Headache Advisory Council. And it's a cross-stakeholder group of individual headache patients who are uh, people of color or allies, leaders of patient advocacy organizations, and doctors who really care about this issue of disparities and addressing those. So we work together, and Jamie Sanders is one of the leaders of this initiative. And we've come together for cross-cultural competency training. We have guest speakers who tell us about what they are doing effectively in other disease areas to address disparities and to diversify their community. And we've actually done a seed grant program where we've given away $120,000 to applicants from within this council to kickstart initiatives. And in one year, we're going to see if we can move the needle, generate real data showing that we're making a difference, and then hopefully get more support to broaden these initiatives in the following years. Two programs that you are associated with, migraine at school and migraine at work. We were trying to reach specific populations that have unique challenges. We did a survey recently looking at people and their migraine patient journey. And we asked them, you know, if, if from when you first experienced symptoms to onset to when you actually got a diagnosis, how long did that take? And if it took longer than a year, why did it take so long? And one of the key reasons is they said, I started experiencing symptoms when I was a child, but no one believed me or no one thought that the symptoms that I had were worthy of going to see a healthcare provider. So we created this program, Migraine at School, which really focuses on three audiences. One are the children themselves, another is their parents, and the third are educators, teachers, school administrators, school nurses, you name it. Being a clearinghouse of information about what is migraine, it does happen amongst children, what can be done about it. It presents a little bit differently, abdominal migraine, where the pain is centered in the stomach instead of the head is more common in children. So that's something that you need to educate people on. And what can be done about it? The accommodations that are offered to children dealing with a lot of other conditions are not frequently offered to children with migraine. And that's unfair. They deserve access to the accommodations they need because when given those accommodations, they can manage their condition, they can be successful in school, and they can really thrive. And that's what we're trying to do. So that's a relatively new initiative. It's migraineatschool.org. Lots of great resources there for anyone who's interested in learning more. And then there's another program, Migraine at Work, not run by CHAMP, but CHAMP is supportive of this effort, close with those who are leading it, and they're fantastic. And that's really looking at the accommodations in the workplace. The federal law says that you need to be giving reasonable accommodations. And people with migraine, they're not asking for a lot. They're asking for a special lighting or dim down lighting in their area. So that is not triggering an attack. They're asking for the ability to work from home. There's a bigger issue, you know, pre-pandemic. But sometimes when they're experiencing an attack, they can continue working, but coming into the office is too far. So educating people about those issues. So many people, they hide their migraine. There's the stigma. There's a shame with having it. They fear that if they let it be known that they have migraine, that they won't be considered for promotions or advancement. So they keep it quiet. And unfortunately, you talk to too many companies and you say, no, do you have anyone in your company talk to an HR department who has migraine? And they say, no, no one in our company has migraine, which is just when it's impacting 15% of the population, it's almost certain in a company of decent size that they have people with migraine. And if they don't know about it, it's because those people are keeping it quiet. So we're trying to create an environment where people understand their rights, 
they're more vocal in asking for those. And we're also working with the employers. They understand how to better support their employees and have them be in better health. And if someone is ready to seek professional help, what should they look for in a physician? You want a physician who trusts you, believes you, and takes it seriously. And if you don't experience that with who you are saying, you should mix it up. Ask for a referral to someone else or look someone else up. We have a a thing where there are headache specialists. Those are neurologists with a special focus and attention and training on headache. They are absolutely the best ones to treat migraine, but there are only about 700 of them across the country. So that means there is one of them for about every 85,000 people living with migraine. They just can't see everyone. So we really have to rely on the primary care physicians, the family doctors to say, I'm willing to take this disease seriously. I'm willing to diagnose it. I'm willing to start treatment on it. And a lot of people respond to that first or second line treatment that can very reasonably be prescribed by those family physicians. And then for the more difficult patients, those who are struggling with efficacy or side effects, then go ahead, refer to a neurologist or a headache specialist. Does the coalition help people identify those professional healthcare workers? Yeah. The coalition started when we recognized a few years ago that this was this golden era for migraine treatments, this wave of innovation that was coming. And how could all of the different patient advocacy groups work together so that instead of having a bunch of individual and overlapping programs, we got to say, okay, how do we coordinate? How do we collaborate? How do we make the most of this moment? So we help as many people as possible and we change how society and how policymakers are viewing this disease, taking it and treating it much more seriously. So our members have a number of doctor finder tools that they have created where you can go in and you can find those who have headache specialists or they've been vouched for by other patients who say, look, this isn't a headache specialist, but they really care and know about headache disease. They give me great care and therefore they have that patient endorsement. So there's a couple of different lists, but they're all geared toward trying to help people find the right provider to help them to manage their challenging migraine disease. This has been an educational experience for me. Gives me something to look out for. I perhaps can recognize these symptoms and others. That's a big part of what you want to do as well is bring recognition. Absolutely. And for everyone, this disease is so prevalent that it's almost certain that you know someone, someone close to you, close in your family, close in your friend circle has migraine. And we want people to talk about it more because talking about something is how you overcome stigma and how you change public perception. Be on the lookout. If you see someone who is you know, having a headache, that you know they have frequent headache, have the conversation. Say, hey, I've noticed uh, you have headache or sometimes you retreat and, and you step away and you're going to a dark and quiet place what's going on? Uh, Have you got it diagnosed? Is it maybe migraine? Encourage people that this is this incredible era. There's so much more available now than ever before, even if they don't get medical treatments, but if they just do online research and realize that there are these lifestyle changes that they can make to help them to better manage, those are steps in the right direction. If you see something in your circle, start the conversation. If you're someone who's living with migraine, please be more willing to talk about it. And if you're someone who thinks you have migraine, but you have not been treated lately, or you've never been diagnosed, make an appointment with a healthcare provider. It really is time for that. Mr. Lindeberg, thank you for bringing awareness to migraine disease. Very useful information. I look forward to continued progress in these efforts. John, thanks so much for having me and for using your platform 
to bring attention to this disease that just simply doesn't get enough attention. Kevin Lindeberg, Executive Director of CHAMP. For additional information on migraine and treatment, visit HeadacheMigraine.org. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.